Well, many of you are familiar with a, a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Ravi has had a tremendous impact uh, for Christ throughout the world. And uh, he tells of one particular uh, trip that he took back to India where he was actually born. Um, and on this particular occasion, he had a unique opportunity to see what is called a sari dress, S-A-R-I. It's an Indian wedding dress. I have a picture of what that looks like. Isn't that beautiful? That's a, a sari dress. And this not S-O-R-R-Y. <laughs> Don't be confused. S-A-R-I. But as you can tell, these things are a work of art. And one of the things that he had the opportunity to do on this particular uh, trip back to India is to go to a place that was world famous for um, uh, creating these these dresses. And so he made his trip there expecting to kind of see this elaborate system of manufacturing and designs and, and computer technology that produced such works of art, uh, really to be world-renowned. But instead, what he found when he went to this particular place, that it was being done by one father-son team. <laughs> the father uh, sat with these beautiful uh, colors of thread, silver and gold and all kinds of a variety of colors. The son actually sat a couple of feet underneath him. And what would happen is that the father would weave this design that he had in his mind with all these fabric colors. And then when he would nod to his son, his son would simply take the shuttle of the loom, move it from one side and back to the other. And this was the process that took place for literally hundreds of hours to produce this finished product. The son obviously had the easy part, right? All he did was respond to his father's nod and his father was the one who had the design in his mind and he was the one that was creating this work of art i tell you that story because i believe we will see it evidenced in our passage this morning god is that master weaver he has this work of art in his mind and joseph in many ways is responding to the nod of his father He's learning to put his trust in him as he begins to see this work of art emerge. And really, in many ways, Joseph's brothers are learning the same thing, and we're going to see that unfold this morning. We are going to cover another full chapter. We've got a big bite we're going to chew on this morning, and we'll do like we've done in the past, where we'll look at this um, as a whole, and I'll highlight key things along the way. But if you would, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 43. And let's look at this together. Genesis chapter 43. As I mentioned, last time we left off, uh, Joseph's brothers are the one who now find themselves in a deep hole. If you'll recall, Simeon is being held back in Egypt, where he is held in prison until Joseph's brothers return home to Canaan to retrieve their youngest brother, Benjamin, and return back for Simeon's promised release. But you'll also remember that where we left off last, Jacob, their father, said that, that was not going to happen. Right? Apparently, Simeon's life is expendable. <laughs> Benjamin's is not. And Jacob said no. However, 
As we all know, and as we see evidenced in this passage, God has a way of allowing difficult circumstances in our life in order to overcome our obstinance. And such was the case in our story this morning. Jacob would become less and less stubborn as he became more and more hungry. And when he started to reach that familiar place of desperation, he began to reconsider his options. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 43, it says this. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt that the father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. I estimate this to have taken about a month. The reason I say that is because later in our passage, Judah makes the comment that they could have traveled to Egypt and back twice by now. It's about a two-week trip, so... My estimate was they had enough food, enough grain from that trip from Egypt to last them about four or five weeks. But I want you to notice in what Jacob had to say to his sons that he is blatantly ignoring the instruction that Joseph gave the brothers to only return with Benjamin. He simply tells them, go back and get us some more food. And so Judah, one of his sons... Uh, speaks respectfully but firmly to remind his father what the Egyptian ruler had told them. He had told them, You will not see my face again until your brother is with you. In other words, we're not going to have a conversation until my demands have been met. I also want you to notice what we see in Joseph's response and what it tells us about where his heart is at this point in our story once again he turns his attention to himself look at verse 6 Jacob said to his sons why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother the implication in this statement is why didn't you just lie about it (laughs) and we wouldn't be in this position to begin with Why did you have to tell them that you had a brother? You could have just made something up. Jacob is falling into that consistent pattern of passivity. He's refusing to take responsibility. And in fact, he's blaming everyone else for the the problems that he's having in his life. I think he's struck with this victim mentality where the universe seems to, to revolve around him. And until Jacob is able to view life outside of himself, he will not be motivated to trust in God and to find his provision in the Lord. But I think that's about to change. God has a way of manufacturing this beauty. Judah gives more information about their encounter with this Egyptian ruler back when they were in Egypt and how he pressed them for details. Their lives were at stake, and it was not a time to be deceptive or try to work their way out of a jam. You see, unlike Jacob, his sons have now, by this point, come to the point where where they have recognized their sin. And they are determined not to repeat the same mistakes of their past. One of the reasons I believe that their heart has changed is because their normal pattern would have been to simply... Take Benjamin and run. (laughs) Who cares what their dad says? 
Just take him and go. Do what they want to do. The old Judah, if you think about it, would not have respectfully reasoned with his dad. He would have been rash and irresponsible. That is his pattern up until this point. And I believe what happens next will validate that there's been a heart change. Look at verse 8. So Judah said to his father Israel, this is Jacob, send the lad with me and I will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. See, unlike Reuben, who I think foolishly put his two sons up for collateral, (laughs) Judah steps in and says, I, I will take personal responsibility for my brother Benjamin. He will be under my personal care, and I will protect him with my life. Remember, the old Judah, remember, the old Judah put the life of his brother at risk, actually plotting to kill him to save his own self. But now he's offering to risk his own life to save the life of his brother. I personally see that as a dramatic change in the life of this man. And and I think, perhaps, that Jacob, his father, notices something different as well because it's at this point that he begins to relent and reconsider his obstinance. In verse 11, he basically says, okay, boys, load up your stuff. Make sure you have the best products of our land to give to the Egyptian ruler. Everything you see listed in verse 11 is a token of submission. It is a gift given to someone who is in authority, to demonstrate respect for that role of authority. You see, Jacob is now shifting his attention off of himself to his sons to help them do the right thing. He tells them in verse 12, be sure to take back a double portion of the money so that you can return what was mistakenly given to you. Take your brother, he says, arise and go to the man. Jacob then prays for their journey and releases his sons into God's sovereign control. There's something happening in the heart of Jacob. Look at his prayer in verse 14. He says this, And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. The Hebrew word that Jacob uses here to describe God is El Shaddai. It's the word used to describe God as sovereignly in control. The all-sufficient God. The one in whom we find our provision. I believe that Jacob is beginning to take his eyes off of himself so that he can find his sufficiency in God even to the point of letting his sons go, knowing that they may not return to him. As we begin to now take a step back and see this unfold, is it not true that the handiwork of God is beginning to emerge? 
we see how he works through trials and, and through difficult circumstances to bring Jacob and his sons to a place where they put their trust in him and find that he is faithful. In fact, the desperate situation that is what forces their decision, isn't it? The trial is what God uses to teach them to trust in him and to find that he is faithful. And with this, they leave for Egypt. Once they arrive, they stand before Joseph, and it tells us that Joseph looks to one of his stewards, and in verse 16, he gives the instruction. He says, bring the men, speaking of Joseph's brothers, into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Now, keep in mind, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of people that are standing in line waiting to see Joseph starving for food. Just imagine this, this long line of desperate people, and then Joseph stands up and says, Ten rows back, those guys over there, pull them aside. In fact, take them to my house. Kill the fatted calf. Don't worry about selling them grade. I want you to feed them a hot meal. Get them ready. I'll meet you there at noon. Now, how often do you think this ruler of Egypt randomly selects strangers from a crowd to enter into his house where he serves them a meal. Uh, How about never, right? This is not something that routinely happens, which is the very reason why Joseph's brothers respond, not with excitement with this new opportunity, but with absolute fear. They feel like something's about to go bad. Look at what they say in verse 18. It says, now the men, speaking of Joseph's brothers, were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it, and it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. And behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in order to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. You see, a guilty conscience is a good thing if it drives you to do the right thing, right? And I believe Joseph's brothers are increasingly committed to doing the right thing. So instead of allowing circumstances to make their decision for them, they take the responsibility to tell this steward even when they're not forced to do so. Because think about this. They could have just waited, right, and just pretended like they didn't know anything until someone else brought it up. Oh, oh, you mean that money? <laughs> yeah, there must have been some kind of mistake. And, you know, we were going to tell you about that, but, boy, it's just been so busy since we rolled into town, we just have not had the opportunity. They, they could have done that. In other words, <laughs> we were going to try to get away with it until you brought it up. And that's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? How many times do we choose to be deceptive until circumstances force us to be honest. 
we tell the truth only when we have to. Otherwise, we try to get away with something as long as we can keep it hidden. That says something about our heart, doesn't it? What it says is that we're not in control of our sin. Our sin is controlling us. And we are being selfish in our pride instead of obedience in our humility. Joseph's brothers have been there. And I believe in this situation what we see is dramatically different. They are proactively taking the responsibility to be honest. And to not only tell the steward about the mistake that had been made, but to have the money ready to pay in full what had been given to them. They're ready to return the money. But look at what the steward says. This is an amazing verse to me. Look at verse 23. The steward speaking says this. Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out. The steward literally tells Joseph's brothers, peace be with you. He then tells them, your money came to me. I am the one who has confirmed that your payment was made in full. And what you have as a treasure in your sacks is a gracious gift of God. Be thankful. He tells them, essentially, you've been faithful. Your God is in control. Be at peace and know that the Lord is the one who's given you the treasure. What a confirmation that they are doing what is right in the eyes of God. It's this, at this time that, that Simeon is returned to them, and, and apparently right about that same time, Joseph also walks into the room. And when he does, each of the brothers bow before him. And with that, dream one is officially fulfilled. You remember the stalks of grain that bowed to to Joseph's stalks of grain. That's just what happened. There was a second dream that included the stars and the moon. That one hasn't been fulfilled because it included Jacob, their father. And so Joseph asked the, the brothers, how's your father? Is he well? They respond and tell him he's doing well. And then Joseph notices that Benjamin is in the room. He turns to his brothers and he says, Is this your youngest brother? The one that you told me about? He then turns to Benjamin and he says, May God be gracious to you, my son. You can't help but listen to those words and and hear the compassion in Joseph's voice as he looks and he says, May God be gracious to you, my son. Remember, this is the most powerful ruler in Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh himself, and yet he's speaking to these strangers as if they're family. And moved by the emotion of the moment, the Scripture tells us that Joseph leaves that place and goes to find a private place where he says he weeps. He weeps. And I wonder why he was weeping. What moved him to that place of emotion? Was it just simply the sight of his youngest brother who he hadn't seen 
in years now? Was it maybe the weight of the fulfillment of his dream right there in front of him? Or perhaps, as we've talked about before, he's been praying for this day. God has prepared his heart for this day. And now that day has come. And he's overwhelmed with emotion. Whatever the case, once he gets composure, he walks back into the room and asks for the meal to be served. But before it's served, he takes the opportunity to seat everyone in a specific place. Curiously, he seats his brothers according to their age, youngest to oldest. And when the food is served, the scripture tells us that Benjamin is given five times the amount of food as his other brothers. See, this is obviously purposeful. It appears that that Joseph's intention is to recreate a scenario that his brothers would have been very familiar with, right? Benjamin is getting special treatment. They're getting what's left. See, this is the test. Will this favoritism provoke their jealousy? Or will it reveal that their heart has been changed? And I believe the simplicity of verse 34 answers the question. It simply says, So they feasted and drank freely with him. In other words... They gave no attention to the disparity, but were simply grateful for what they had been given. What these verses tell us, I believe, is that Joseph's brother's hearts have, in fact, been changed. Just think about what we've seen in this chapter alone. They took responsibility to, to follow through with their commitment to Joseph and to protect the life of of their brothers. And they listened to their conscience and they proactively told the truth even when they didn't have to. They set aside their selfish attitudes in order to protect the life of their family. They confessed their sin. They trusted in God. They found Him faithful and they were grateful for their provision. Now you tell me, does that sound anything like the brothers who sat around the pit conspiring to murder Joseph? No. Not at all. There's been a dramatic change. They have found that trusting in God is the antidote to their jealousy. You see, up until this point, as we've looked at the story of Joseph and his brothers, his brothers were the ones who have been taking things into their own hands, trying to maneuver their way into a place of prosperity. They were the captain of their ship. They were setting their sails in the direction that they wanted to go. Jealousy was ignited when when other people, including their own family, stood in their path. You see, that same jealousy is ignited in us when we, like Joseph's brothers, take our eyes off of the Lord and chart our own course. This reminds me of a conversation I heard about a father and a son recently. The son was being honest with his dad, and he was talking to him about his friends around him. And he said, you know, Dad, he said, so many of my friends have things that I don't have. He says, they got new clothes and, and the latest phone and the, the cool shoes. He said, you know, Dad, it, it just doesn't seem fair because, well, well, I only get shoes when I need them. 
See, this young man's eyes were so focused on what everyone else had that, that by comparison, it seemed that he was being treated unfairly, even though by his own admission, he had exactly what he needed. I, I found the story amusing when I first heard it, and then I began to think. We do the same thing with God. We start looking around at what everyone else has, and then we turn to God and we say, you give me all I need, but I want more. My job provides for my family, but I want more. My, my wife is more than I deserve, but I want more. My car gets me to where I want to go, but I want more. As I've thought about this own issue in my own life, I believe that my heart of discontent is often rooted in my pride. The reason I want more is because I think I deserve more. Like Joseph brothers, we only come to a place where we're thankful for what we have when we're convinced that it's more than what we deserve. The steward told them, I have confirmed your payment in full. Everything else that you have is a gracious gift from God. And when they accepted this gift, their jealousy could not be provoked because it was overruled by a grateful heart. They were thankful for what they had because they knew it was more than what they deserved. With that in mind, I want you to take just a minute and think about the message of the cross. And I want you to think about it in the context of the message of the steward. It is here at the cross that God has made the statement that your payment has been made in full through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And everything you have from this point forward is a gift of grace through faith. When we really understand who we are in Christ, our jealousy cannot be provoked because it is overruled by a grateful heart. Knowing that what we have in Him is so much more than what we deserve. See, our contentment flows out of our gratitude. But we don't naturally gravitate to that place, do we? And so I believe sometimes God will intentionally allow circumstances into our life that are difficult. He'll allow trials to come into our lives that put us in a place where we have to learn to trust in Him, just like we see in the life of Joseph and his brothers. Because I think we would all agree, if we look at the life of Joseph's brothers, they do not get to this place if life is easy and pain-free. It does not happen. They get to this place because they have encountered some difficult circumstances that forced decisions that they would not have made on their own. And and I think that along the while, they thought God was punishing them when in fact, He was redeeming them. Just think about when they first found that silver in their sacks. Do you remember what they said? They said, what is this that God has done to us? In their minds, from their point of view, they were convinced that they were being punished. But in fact, as we can now see that picture emerging right in front of us, he was redeeming them. 
He was bringing them to a place where they could find forgiveness and hope and live in gratitude for God's provision. And we need to understand that God continues to do the same work in us as well. The Bible says that we are his workmanship, literally his masterpiece. It reminds me of what has considered, been considered to be uh, Michelangelo's greatest work. It's called the Pieta. This is what it looks like. You've probably seen it before. He was commissioned to do this work when he was just 23 years old, if you can believe that. It tells us that uh, the process took over two years once he finally found the piece of marble that he was willing to work with. And he went from quarry to quarry to find a single piece of marble that then was delivered to his studio. Once it was delivered, this amazing artist chiseled and filed and chipped away in order to create his masterpiece. He used such precision that his contemporaries looked at this finished piece of artwork and said, this will never be duplicated. It is unprecedented and will never be duplicated. But I want you to think about it from this perspective. If we were there watching Michelangelo do his work, not knowing what this would look like someday, and we walked into that studio and we saw him pull out a hammer and a chisel and take out big chunks of stone and then get out a rasp and a file. These are tools of torture, right? Creating these seemingly ignorant curves and shapes and it would make no sense to us. In fact, I think we would look at it as an act of vandalism more than a, than a work of art. But all the while, the artist knew that he was creating a masterpiece. He's releasing the beauty inside that we would have never, ever seen. In fact, we would think he's just making a mess of things. And that's how we often see God's work in our life. We're like that piece of stone. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty rough around the edges. (laughs) And I know that when God begins to take his chisel to my life, I often wonder, what in the world is he doing? The process may seem like punishment. But listen to me. In reality, it is a work of redemption. It is a work of redemption. God is using difficult circumstances to shape our character, to save our souls. He's using the trials we face to teach us to trust in Him. I had the opportunity yesterday to hear two men from our church stand up before the other men at the retreat. And Brandon will testify to the fact that this was the most significant part of the weekend, I'm sure. As they told testimonies of the difficult circumstances that they found themselves in, And how God redeemed them. Their lives. Their marriages. Their families. And as I sat and listened to these stories being told. I couldn't help but think. And and actually got up before the men. I said I don't know about you. But as I listen to these stories. I can't help but see. They've been rescued. They've been rescued. They've been pulled out of a dark pit. And rescued. And then I'll tell you like I told them. Go look in the mirror. You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. You are God's masterpiece. And I know 
there are plenty of times in our lives where he's doing work on us that we wonder what in the world is going on. And it feels like punishment. But it's redemption. It is redemption. It is always redemption in the gracious hand of God. Don't ever forget that. Let me give you something to do this week. Just write this website down, okay? Bear with me because it will sound funny, but it's www.skitguys.com, okay? S-K-I-T-G-U-I-S dot com. There is a little, I would have shown it today, but it's too long. About a 10-minute video, uh, what did I say? It's called God's Chisel, okay? Some of you have seen it before. Even if you have, do it again. Let me ask you, sometime this week, go watch that video and use it as a devotional and consider the message of what you will hear and see in your life as God's masterpiece. Would you do that? Take the opportunity this week. You will be glad you did. Let me close this in prayer. God, thank you for the promise that we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. I confess to you that many times I try to avoid the pain of the chisel because it feels like punishment. But may I be reminded as I look into the life of Joseph and his brothers that those are actually works of redemption and that I can trust you, that you are good, that you are righteous, and you are trying within the works of your hands as we follow you in obedience to release us to new life, life in you. May we come increasingly to know over time that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, and you are creating something beautiful from ashes. We're grateful for that promise and for our time together this morning. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a great day.